Welcome to the NCO Journal podcast, where we explore NCO professional development. This is a podcast series where we discuss published articles with authors and provide a forum for the open exchange of ideas, information, and solutions. I'm your host, Chago Zapata, Managing Editor of the NCO Journal at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. Today, we discuss Sergeant Major Clayton Dos Santos and Mr. James Perdue's article, Battle of Mogadishu, the Mission Command Perspective. With us is Sergeant First Class Osvaldo Equite, NCOIC of the NCO Journal, Staff Sergeant Brandon Cox, Senior Editor and new member of the NCO Journal team, and Special Guest Dr. Randy Mastin, Army University Press Films Team Chief. Before we kick things off, could you please tell us a bit about yourselves? Dr. Mastin, we'll start with you. Okay, I guess I was uh, enlisted 11 Bravo to E5 before I went to OCS, and uh, at OCS I became an aviator, so it's close to this mission, and then uh, the final years of uh, my career in the Army, I was a foreign area officer focused on Central Europe. I've got a master's in Russian Eastern European Studies, MMAS from the Staff College here in Military History, and a Ph.D. in military history from the University of Kansas. What's relevant about, about Mogadishu? Mogadishu, uh, my dissertation was actually on the uh, Somalia from uh, 92 to 95, uh, focusing on uh, United Nations operations, Somalia, UNISOM 1 and UNISOM 2, and then the interim mission led by the uh, U.S., the Unified Task Force, or Unif- UNITAF. So I've, I've studied it quite a bit, uh, more on the contributions of, you know, the U.S., uh, our U.N. allies and others, and, and how that was conducted. The, uh, the battle itself uh, was a key turning point uh, to ending that mission, and I'm sure we'll get into that as this goes on. Mr. Purdue, could you tell us a, bit, a little bit about yourself as well? All right, so... Um... I entered the Army back in 1977, a couple of days ago, and I uh, went straight into Special Forces, right out of basic airborne school, straight into Special Forces. So I did my whole 27 years either in Special Forces or Special Ops community. Um, I made it up through the ranks of Sergeant Major, and um, during the operation, uh, during operation in Mogadishu, the Battle of Mogadishu, I was a Sergeant First Class at the time. Um, I left the unit, became a Sergeant Major, started teaching at the Sergeant's Majors Academy at Fort Bliss, uh, Texas, where I later retired and became a DA civilian teaching at the Sergeant Major Academy, where I presently am now teaching um, Department of Army Operations. So I hold a master's degree in public administration, a master's degree in leadership, and a master's degree in human resource and development. And uh, I did 27 years total. Let's jump right in. My first question is, what inspired you to write this article, you and Sergeant Major Dos Santos? All right, so a little background here. Sergeant Major Clayton and I are currently instructors in the Department of Army Operations here at the Sergeant Major's Academy at Fort Bliss, uh, Texas. Sergeant Major goes by Clayton. Sergeant Major Clayton. Clayton yes, sir. Okay, uh, so it's... Uh, his name, his last yeah. He goes by his first name then. His, so his, yeah. his first, yeah, last name yeah yeah so in brazil they get to pick since um his name is a common name within his army um he uses clayton instead of his last name thanks for clarifying yeah that's All good right. sergeant major clayton uh is not a army u.s army sergeant major he is from the brazilian army uh, he attended the sergeant major's course uh, a couple of years ago i think one or two years ago came back as a um, international instructor here at the Sergeant Major's Academy. We have several um, different countries here at the Sergeant Major Academy. I have a Brazilian Sergeant Major with me that teaches in the classroom. And we also have in our department a Singapore. So we have two internationals pretty much per department. Um, so we, we teach in the same classroom. And uh, so each classroom, just so you know a little background, each, each classroom up here in each department has an active duty and a DA civilian um, instructor. So the DA civilian instructors um, were all, all our retired command sergeant majors or sergeant majors. And all the sergeant major active duty, to include sergeant major Clayton, all have master's degrees of some sorts. And some of them actually have PhDs or EDHs. 
So one day, Sergeant Major um, was in in the office, and I had my Black Black Hawk Down book in there, wrote by, uh, written by Mark Bowden. And uh, he looked at it, and he said he asked if he could read it, and I said, Yeah, absolutely, go ahead and read it. So he read it and said, Hey, you know, so since we teach Mission Command and you know decisive action stuff, he said, Let's let's do an article with um, pertaining to the Battle of Mogadishu with a command uh, mission command perspective and i said yeah let's do it and so he likes to write he he does a lot of articles and so um and that's how we're, that's how the we inspired i got inspired in writing articles because his interest in mogadisha and applying some of the mission command perspectives uh, within the battle you you said that you took part in that operation what what part did you play uh, and what was your rank at the time? You said I think you said you were a sergeant first class, right? And uh, so, right. what, what part the, did you play during the um, battle itself? I was actually a uh, I was the uh, I was an east or excuse me sergeant first class during that portion of the battle, uh, or when that battle occurred. I was the ground force commander's um, RTO um, for all the missions we we conducted over there. So I served as the assault force commander R2, who was the, uh, for that particular mission, Captain Miller, uh, who most know him as today as General Miller, who uh, oversaw the Afghanistan operation during the past um, several years. And he just retired as a four-star general. So um, that's my part was, is for the whole ground force, assault force, I was the um, command element, um, primary RTO. So I, I basically uh, ran the uh, communications between the commander and all the aircraft, uh, C2 Bird, back to Fort Bragg, um, back to the jock, or talk back there uh, where General Garrison was. Um, I talked to the assault force. So I had multiple radios in my backpack. So it was pretty heavy, but that was the continuity between the commander and, and all the uh, C2 elements and, and the ground force. And what was your understanding of planning and mission command back then? So really back at that time when I was a sergeant first class, I really didn't have a, a good understanding of planning mission. Um, my my um, understanding of mission command back then was pretty minimal. It wasn't because uh, I was just a sergeant first class at that point, but I really didn't understand the concepts of mission command until I became sergeant major years later. Um, so my knowledge of mission command back then was pretty minimal. If you had known about mission command and the, 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 the whole aspect of, of mission command, how would that have affected your, your, your part out there at the time? Well, you know, I think critical insights for successful execution of mission command as senior and NCOs in the future, um, you know, create a shared understanding um, with that said, continually assessing the, and recessing the enemy capabilities, uh, update commander's knowledge of the OE, because I think it's very important to understand an operation environment uh, in helping the commander visualize this current uh, end state of the operations. In addition, I'll probably ensure that successful, uh, to be mission successful, I would probably fully understand, well, wouldn't probably I would really understand the commander's intent of the operation so, so you know, can understand and uh, the purpose, the key tasks, and his desired end state. Yeah. Um, when did you arrive in uh, Somalia? Oh, wow. So the operation was in October, October 3rd, 3rd and 4th. And so I want to say um, it was back in August. Sometime in August we deployed. So we had, we had uh, but prior to October 3rd, we had did several um, other missions up to that point. So I want to say, I, I you know, I want to say mid-August. I can't remember exactly what the date was 28 years ago, um, <laughs> but it, it was sometime, sometime in August. And so I had forgot a lot of the mission until I actually had to, uh, when we did our paper, it, it brought back some memories because I had forgot so much 28 years ago because really never talked about it much. Um, you know, uh, I think the first two year or two, it was, you know, kind of big back then. And it kind of died out because nowadays you ask people not military, anything about Black Hawk Down, they give you that that blank stare like, what are you talking about? You know, I mean, I think people in the military, 
that was in that time frame kind of understand what we're talking about. But um, I don't think a lot of the people, younger generations understand um, Black Hawk Down and, and what happened during that operation. Leading up to that day, uh, when you were there, so you were conducting other raids uh, prior to that point? Yeah, we, we had co conducted, I don't know, uh, five or six raids successfully up to that point. So, um, you know, that that day on third, 3 October, you know, was we thought was going to be just a typical another operation, uh, another date walk in the park, as I would say, um, as far as operation wise. So pretty much like five, I want to say five or six missions, I guess. And they, you know, went off without a hitch for the most part. Yeah, because like in September, you know, they they captured uh, Osmanato. Uh, I don't know if you were part of that or not. Uh, which task force were you with? Task Force Ranger. Okay, yeah, that was uh, Task Force 225. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you were expecting, uh, you know, based on what you said, kind of another uh, walk in the park and, and an easier mission to accomplish. Had you seen any ratcheting up? of you know basically the somali adid's capabilities or anything to that point well you know we did a lot of our operations in the evening you know and so we had element of surprise we had helicopters we flew low um, we usually went in fast roped in or you know we fast roped in for the most part almost every operation and uh, so we had the element of surprise so you know I truly believe that our unit was by far the the best physically fit. We were well-trained, well-disciplined, well-equipped. We had some of the best technology and that the, I, we didn't really think the Somali Milita at the NSA at the time, or uh, what is it, national, I can't remember what we called. Um, the SNA? Yeah. We didn't think they really had enough uh was going to be much of a factor because we had already did five or six missions at up to that point successfully. And so I believe we uh, kind of became overconfident in our capabilities. Um, and like the other missions, we probably thought we could, it only take a couple hours uh, to complete the mission. And um, we encountered little resistance um, on most of those other missions. So based on uh, intelligence, um, and because of the situation, we had to move fast that day on, on October 3rd. So what we did was um, we got our intelligence. Um, we got approximately about 1,500 hours. Then, and I had to look it up because it's been so long, I couldn't remember the timeline. Um, but it was definitely late in the afternoon. Uh, it was still daylight. Uh, it was in the heat of the day because I remember it was hot with all the gear on. And, and you know, it was we thought it was going to be you know, similar to our previous missions, except for this time, it's going to be pretty much in daylight. So I would say a lot, a majority, and I, I can't say everybody because I can't remember what everybody's carrying, but I, I can tell you that, that a lot of us did not bring night vision goggles. Uh, we didn't bring food. We didn't bring water. We modified some of our equipment. Some of them took out their, their um, plates within their um, body armor uh, and modified their loads. So um, that was kind of a, a, a mistake on our part because I think we got overconfident um, because of the other five or six missions. And, um, you know, my takeaway from that is, is uh, for NC us as NCOs, you know, we need to be better prepared for the future and, and, and train as we fight. You know, don't take the shortcuts um, based on previous operations and always be prepared for the worst because, I don't think, based on all that, um, like I say, we didn't have, you know, for a 19-hour firefight, we, we, we had our basic ammo. We didn't bring really water. We didn't bring any food. So, you know, all that thing add up, adds up. So, you know, basically the end, end result there is, is train like you're, like you're going to fight and, and don't take the shortcuts just because of, of previous mission. Because once they shot down our helicopters, it no longer became a raid. It came more of a defense of a crash site. And so, you know, once one went down and then the other one went down, we had two, two crash sites and we're still fighting our way. And something that I, you know, I had forgotten, or maybe I didn't realize um, in our research, 
it said the first crash site was only about 300 meters from our uh, target building. Well, I can tell you, I, I never knew it was 300 meters. It felt like it was two miles because it took us forever to get to that crash site because it wasn't just like walk down the street and get to it. Um, it you know, there's the streets are dirt, you, you know, it, vehicles and it, it just, it's hard to maneuver. And so uh, it took us a while. So when I saw that it was 300 meters, when I read it was 300 meters away, I said, man, it seemed like it was, you know, miles away compared to three, because it took us a little bit to get there. Yeah, because um, just looking through my notes here, uh, Test Force Ranger landed about uh, 1540. So, yeah, middle of the day. And uh, like you're saying, the the dirt, you know, streets, you, I, I guess uh, he had a couple injuries just in the fast rope down because of the brownout they, they didn't see the, the yeah well you know I, I i knew my helicopter had landed before the uh, rangers and so i know i was running down the road and i actually observed the ranger fall off his fast rope and and he fell with good good little ways because them helicopters i know our fast ropes was probably the full length and so it it seemed like it, that fast rope seemed like it took forever by the time he got to the ground and i saw that ranger uh missed the rope and fall but of course we were still running down the street going to the target building so um, um you know I, i'm assuming the rest of his rangers took care of him but yeah it was uh and then the uh the rotor wash with all that dirt going if you didn't have goggles on it, it pretty much blind with all that dirt going in your eyes yeah because uh, i mean the the planned operation went pretty well by uh, i think it was 20 minutes you'd already you know captured the uh the what like 20 some odd uh people that you were yeah i think it was like 24 um we captured so yeah yeah 24 uh i i think that the key one was ahmed or sami but i mean that part doesn't really matter so so there you are you've got you know 24 uh people that you've captured and now you got what super 61 i think went down first and it was super 64 went down second that's the one that most people yeah are. so being there being the uh, rto I, I was listening i can hear the helicopters you know i can hear helicopter super 61 which was actually our helicopter um that that i had flown on myself and 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 uh general miller captain miller back then that was our our lead bird super 61 was the lead bird and so we heard him going down and so you know at that point we had to figure out where it was and uh, we got guided in by uh, Super 64 at the time, I think it was. And uh, I told the commander, hey, we got a, another helicopter or helicopter just got shot down. And in the process of moving to Super 61's crash site, um, I heard on the radio that Super 64 was going down. So uh, but we were still fighting our way to the first one. And so. Um, most of us were on our way to super six one and, and, uh, I, none of us ever made it to super six, four, obviously, I don't know how far that was away. They, they said it wasn't that far, but I can tell you that at the point, at that point, a lot of the, we've been on the ground fighting for, uh, you know, a short while. And, uh, I think a lot of helicopters were bingo on fuel or getting that away. So. I don't think Super 64 had a lot of uh, air coverage at that particular time. Yeah, no, and uh, yeah, six Super 64 went went down about 20 minutes later. Around yeah, there. so it, it it yeah, you know, all all relative uh, according to time, kind of, you know, there was no time. It just seemed like everything was you know slowed down and speed up at times, and and so I had no concept of time other than you know that 300 meters just seemed like it took forever to get there. I don't know how long it took us to get there. It seemed like forever. It may not have been. Um, but you know, we had to fight our way down the streets to get there. And had you, uh, participated in the, they'd done like a rehearsal for a downed aircraft drill. Uh, well, you know what, that, that's the thing. That. I think we, we overlook some, some, uh, drills when we come to that. I, I think that was kind of one of our shortfalls because I don't think, even though it was a possibility, I don't think most of us really anticipated um, helicopters getting shot down. Now, we all knew they're vulnerable. You know, there's not much to a, a MH-60 Blackhawk helicopter. They're very vulnerable to RPG small arms fire. And they were orbiting, you know, when um, 
when we did our mission, they were just orbiting, using the miniguns. I think we had one or two snipers in some of the helicopters to help uh, engage. That's where Randy and Shugart, why they were um, able to uh, fast rope down or get down um, where Super 6-4 was because of the fact that they were two of the snipers that were lording in the air. So one of the things I don't think we really was prepared for was when we got a helicopter shot down because I don't think we really – plan for it. I don't think we, we overlook their capabilities. I think, I think we didn't look at um, the way they can master RPGs and, you know, they, they, they constantly fired RPGs at the helicopter, but I don't think they really hit anything up to that day. Um, but when they hit super six, one and then super six, four, uh, we really did not have a good, we only had, I think one CSAR bird. So um, you could tell you right there, I don't think we were really prepared for helicopters to get shot down. Um, so, uh, and then having to turn our raid into a defensive a, of a crash site, we spent more time at the crash site um, than we did on mission by far. So uh, yeah, that's something that I, I think we could have did better at as far as mission mission planning. And, and that is, um, helicopters getting shot down because they are vulnerable. But I, I don't think we really took the Somalis serious enough that they were going to be knocking down helicopters. Well, when you're, when you're bringing up um, the principles of Michigan command and that operation, that is one of the shortcomings that you mentioned in your article is that the, the, the lack of shared understanding. Um, and then maybe Dr. Mastin, you can probably talk a little bit about this, uh, of how this uh, ramp up from the enemy um, was being noted in different areas, but maybe that just didn't get across to the to the Ranger Task Force. I think that um, you know, Adid, and I can't think of his uh, his colonel that was doing a lot of this, who'd who'd been an officer in the Somali Army, was was very well versed in uh, uh, insurgency counterinsurgency operations, and he was. He was getting them to uh, to volley fire like their RPGs instead of doing them solo, right? He'd, you know, trying to the equivalent of massing fires when your only fires are RPGs, uh, and and they had a uh, uh, they knocked down a bird, uh, one of our uh, UH-60s, and I'm I'm trying to find the in my notes when that was, but it it was like in September they. It was the first time that one had been shot down by an RPG. So it, it was uh, like late September, um, but uh, they they had kept stepping up their fire. Like uh, they were the first time that uh, one of our aircraft reported uh, being fired upon uh, by you know really well aimed ground fire was was in September. And so this is, you know, evolving. I mean, we're talking about October 3rd and 4th here. And so, you know, you saw this escalation of instead of just kind of scattering and fighting of, of more, okay, let's let's start targeting the uh, aircraft. And, you know, at night it's one thing, but during the day it's a little bit easier to, uh, to you know, put your fire on it. And it's also harder because you're not seeing the, the muzzle flashes you would at night under goggles. Um, so, yeah, it... Um, it, it was creeping up, but there really wasn't uh, a, a belief that, you know, they would come after uh, a, particularly a, a task force ranger like they did. I mean, they, they'd hit the uh, Pakistanis in June at uh, Radio Adid or Radio Mogadishu and, uh, and killed 23, I think, Pakistanis on, on that raid, and that's what precipitated okay we're going with a bigger package with task force ranger instead of a smaller one it was like operation gothic serpent or something was was being planned to send in more u.s troops um and and skilled u.s troops they they wanted to avoid you know sending in another battalion or brigade um just of uh, of ground forces so so yeah the escalation occurred you know, over time and slowly. So I think it was easy to overlook the, uh, the, the increased capabilities that, uh, that, you know, Mr. Purdue and uh, others experienced. And to caveat on that, I think that, uh, 
you know, they after five or six missions, I think they starting to learn how we operate. We had quite a few helicopters every time we went up. We had four little birds. We had a C2 bird and we had a multiple uh, number of um, Blackhawks. So, you know, I, I think they, they figured if they can probably um, stifle our initiative and, and get one down, um, that was good for them. And to get two of them down was even better. But I, I think one of the uh, shortcomings, I believe, is when Colin Powell uh, denied uh, General Garrison's request for the AC-130 gunships, which I, I think was a critical mistake. I mean, the ability to deploy an AC-130 gunship um, probably could improve both crash site security and hinder the uh, SNA's uh, um, ability to block, impede, uh, re reinforce, and harass the, the assault force as they were maneuvering through the uh, the city because AC-130 gunships bring down pretty lethal and uh, accurate gunfire. Uh, and then, you know, you know, caveat on what I just talked about earlier is, is um, the shortcoming was we, we failed to really develop a plan to execute the operation, protect our, our I, I look at it as tactical decisive points, which was our Blackhawk, our M60 Blackhawk uh, helicopters. Again, like I said, they're, they're vulnerable. And I think, um, you know, taking one down is, is was a great uh, feat for them. And, and to get two was was definitely uh, a feat for them. Yeah, and also, in addition to, to not sending the, uh, the AC-130, they also turned down uh, Major General uh, Montgomery's, uh, the U.S. Request Ground Forces for tanks commander. And stuff. Yeah, he had, yeah, he had requested the Bradleys at a minimum, and they said, no, you're not going to get those. Uh, and just turned him down, you know, out of hand in the communications. It wasn't a uh, a debate. It was just like, no, you're not going to get those. Yeah, I can tell you when I was in Grenada, um, the Macy gunships was worth the money. I mean, they took out um, targets with pinpoint precision. And, and uh, you know, they're, they're awesome um, platforms to have up um, at your disposal. Yeah, so there must have been a, a risk acceptance Um you know, level from, from the commanders at that moment to say, we're not going to include the AC-130 gunship. We're not going to send in the Brownleys. We're, we're going to do this with a, with this size of a force. So, so at, when we're talking about those principles of mission command, I think that was some of the risks that, that they, they took and that it didn't turn out in their favor. Um, and then once you're down on the ground, you, you can't do much um, with, with some of those decisions of, you know, of, of understanding and, and risk acceptance at that point, you you have to react and, and practice some disciplined initiative. And that was one of my questions for you, uh, Sergeant Major, was um, maybe maybe you can talk a little bit about some of the examples of disciplined initiative, initiative that your team took while, while on the ground. All right, so I was with the ground force commander. So, um, you know, some of the things, you know, obviously things changed as, um um, the, the operation unfolded. Uh, we, we actually, after the, um, you know, we got all the prisoners, we moved to the crash site. And so we had, we'd probably, we, we set up a perimeter around the uh, crash site real quick. And, um, Captain Miller at the time, um, assessed the situation, put us in different angles so we can, um, support the crash site because we had to get them two pilots out. Um, and, and, uh, they were stuck within the wreckage because it went down, I think, nose first. I, I didn't actually see the, the crash site. I, I think Captain Miller and a few of the others went to the crash site and uh, um, they continued to try to get the pilots out, you know, because our, our thing is we never leave any fallen comrades behind. So we we, we fought on, we, we secured the, the crash site all night long and uh, we constantly was taking fires from all sorts of directions. We were taking RPGs all night. Um, the little birds were a blessing. They they stayed engaged the whole time. Uh, we were calling danger close fire missions with their rockets. Um, so uh, they were definitely, you know, they weren't C-130s, but they were some um, some of the best pilots out there is them, them little bird pilots from the 160th. And so I, I know that uh, a couple of times we took, you know, commander took some initiative. And I know there's some buildings that was two story next to us. Um, and uh, we had called them some fire missions on them. And uh, I think the C2 bird came up one time and said, hey, uh, that's danger close. And then our commander said, hey, you know, if they want it, give it to them. And uh, the pilots came in, just told us to keep our heads low. And, and uh, they gauged uh, in, in them targets 
with the Rockets. And that's something that, uh, you know, Captain Miller took the initiative and and uh, had them engage them targets, even though they were danger close. When all this is is going on and you know now your mission has changed, right? You've Everything's uh, kind of taken a turn for the worst. What would you say is uh, a couple of questions here? What would uh, what was the best thing that like uh, you know the the leadership on the ground did your NCOs your officers whomever what was the best thing that that they did to ensure that you you know were pointed in the right direction for success? Well, I can tell you, you know, the C two bird up there guiding and uh, the helicopter support we had was phenomenal. Um, Captain Miller, you know, he didn't make four star general for, you know, not being super. He was, he was awesome. He understood the uh, terrain. He understood the uh, enemy uh, to, uh, you know, being on the ground that he got, he put um, the NCOs in points of advantage uh, that would support um, the, the perimeter of the first down aircraft because Somalis were constantly uh, trying to find ways to um, get within our perimeter um, but we held them back all night long. I mean, um, the, the guys were phenomenal. I mean, all the NCOs within the unit are just super. I mean, I, I can't say enough about them. They're just um, some of the best NCOs I've ever been around. I mean, they're smart, articulate. Um, you don't have to really guide them. They, uh, they take the self-initiative. There needs to be something to be done. They take the initiative and do it. Um, so I, I give hats off to those guys. Uh, they all, every single one of them did something heroic throughout the battle. Um, and, uh, like I say, Captain Miller at the point, he was, um, steady talking to the, uh, C2 bird, um, Gen uh, Colonel Harold at the time, which was the commander, our squadron commander. And, uh, between talking back and forth, um, he got all the information he needed from the C2 bird and he reacted to the situation. Yeah. Those are the lessons that I took from reading your article, um, as an NCO, those are the lessons that I took with me that, you know, being able to communicate clearly, being able to, uh, being competent in what you're doing, um, really is going to pay off dividends when, when you are in a situation where, where thing, things are not going to plan. And so being able to have that, that, that trust and, and confidence in your teammates and your leadership to, to, to provide the support that you need, um, knowing that, that you might be putting yourself in danger, um, but you're doing so to, to make sure that your team makes it out of there. Those are some of the things that I took away from the the article as, as lessons learned that all, all NCOs can take away, right, that they can read this and say, hey, you know what, we did make some mistakes, we could have done things better, but at, at the end of the day, and I'm stuck in that situation, here's what I can do, or here's how I better prepare for that. I think based on our training, um, the, the outstanding leadership we had, uh, we didn't lose as many as we probably could have in that environment. Um, now, looking back at after the mission's already been conducted, you know, I, I probably would, you know, as command sergeant major or sergeant major or someone in charge, I'd probably ensure that we were better prepared for mission. And, and by saying that, we were prepared, but bring all the required equipment needed for the mission, okay? I mean, be prepared for that follow-on mission. Be prepared for, you know, the helicopters going down. Be prepared for staying on instead of two hours, 19 hours. Make sure that we have a better shared understanding of the OE and the enemy and ensure that everybody is involved in the mission orders, mission planning, because a lot of times it happened on, you know, on the fly. Intel will come in, you know, known, uh, a known um, enemy combatant was at a certain location. We had to react. And uh, so a lot of times we're getting our mission as we're getting to the helicopter. You know, they're, everybody's, okay, this is a mission. We're going to hit this target building, this, that. You're going to be the blocking force and so forth. So I think incorporating uh, everybody, if, if time was permitting, um, to get fully understand on the mission prior to, um, you know, deploying with helicopters. Also, I think we could done a better job incorporating the 10th ID uh, in the training in the event that we needed QR, uh, needed QR force, and it could probably helped us um, better execute QRF by involving them in our training and letting them know what was going on. Um, again, 
because of our leadership and, and our, our training, I think um, we made a bad situation into a good situation the best we could. Some things just aren't necessarily, as an NCO, they're not necessarily uh, part of your responsibility. So you have to react and be prepared. I think that's what it all comes down to. Um, which brings up one of the questions that, that we have here was, uh, and you answered it just brilliantly just now, uh, about uh, what would you do if you were command sergeant major back then uh, and under those yeah, circumstances? And that, so, exactly. I think that's what I just talked about, um, bringing the required equipment, shared understanding, you know, making sure everybody's um, involved in mission planning, mission orders, and, and in, or incorporating other units um, that may, we may need in there. Again, we didn't do that because I don't think we fully understood that or we didn't have, think they had the capabilities knocking out one helicopter, let alone two helicopters. And, and again, um, up to five, six missions prior to that, we were in and out in no time um, with, with, you know, very minimal um, injuries and, and, um, and so forth. And so I, I think we took that same approach on 3 October. What was something that you learned that you didn't know before while you were researching for this article? Well, you know, um, I don't think I learned a lot of research and articles since I, I was there and, and lived the experience firsthand. It brought back a lot of memories um, that I had long forgot. Uh, one of the things that, that I did uh, learn, and, and again, I, I didn't realize it, um, I, I think the, um, some of the research said we were only 300 meters away. It seemed like a lot longer than 300 meters when we had a fight away to that down uh, Super Six One that that first helicopter got shot down. It it's when if you'd have told me it was 300 meters, I'd say no, nah, it wasn't no 300 meters. So that's something that um, you know I learned. And then um, I believe Sergeant Major, I wish Sergeant Major Clayton would have been available, but uh, he learned a lot of the details about the mission and some of the mission command considerations, such as um, the faulty planning with the AC-130, the lack of shared understanding, Intel, that was inaccurate, that, that was, their analysis was inaccurate of the enemy capabilities. Um, and then, you know, he, he also took away some of the delayed communications, how we had to go through uh, certain, you know, echelons before we get uh, um, certain information, uh, information sent back to us. During the I guess the battle where you guys were more defending the perimeter. Um, did you notice anything from any of the NCOs that showed a, a, a superior um, um, just taking control or uh, showing? Well, you know what? Uh, most our unit is is NCO heavy. I mean, I mean, I was a sergeant first class at the time, and I think the majority of the people were. I don't think we we had anybody less than a staff sergeant. So most of the individual were in, in my little perimeter with, with Captain Miller was our, one of our troop sergeant majors and, and, and a couple other sergeant first class. We had a few um, at, in our area. We had a, and, and we had, I had also had a CCT guy in our, in our perimeter, um, the, the primary medic uh, on, on the ground force medic. So he was taking care of a few um, casualties we had within our perimeter, but everybody, you didn't, you know, those individuals, you don't have to um, direct them. They see it uh, and they take the initiative to make sure that uh, whatever they're doing um, is correct. So at the end of the day, self-initiative was not an issue. They did that and uh, they did it well. Mr. Purdue, this this doesn't necessarily have anything to do with uh, Mission Command, but one of, one of the, from my experiences, one of the things I remember, like if I think back on my time in Iraq, you know, uh, sometimes I think about a specific thing and I, I smell the smells, the sights, everything just kind of just kind of pops into my brain. I smell those things. I, I almost feel them. Is there anything that jumps out to you about your experience out there, about uh, when you were out there, the smells, the feel, the, the grit? I don't know. Anything jump out at you? Yeah. You know what? I, I could tell you that uh, I was never more thirsty than um, on that mission. Of course, we hadn't drink. Well, you know, it was broad daylight when it was hot. Um, you know, you're, you're in a firefight or, or you're engaging the enemy for hours. And, uh, I was, I, I remember one of the things I remember the most is, is when the, uh, mountain 10th mountain division came in, we got, um, 
pretty used to the 50 cow shells falling from the, the little birds. And when they're firing over you, they, they fall. Some, if it gets inside the back of your shirt, it's hot. <laughs> it'll, it'll burn you real quick. Um, and soon, first time they came over and they start dropping all them um, 50 cow shells, I noticed all of them hit the dirt because they're not used to, to the shells falling down on the ground around them. And then the little birds going and they're the little birds ain't that far uh, um, high above you. They're they're pretty low. And uh, but some of them, you know, things that uh, stand out to me is just, um, you know, it was just constantly gunfire. So when I hear a lot of gunfires and, and I think the movie portrays it pretty good. I mean, if you think about it, a movie portrays a 19 hour firefight or, you know, battle in, in a couple hours, you know, they got to keep it short. Um, sometimes a little bit more glorified than, than what actually on the ground. But then again, it's, it's the opposite. Sometimes it's, it's the opposite of what, you know, they show in the movie, but um, um, you know, one of the things I take away, I remember the most from, from um, that battle is um, when we got back to, when we finished that mission and we got back to our hangar, we were de-kitting and stuff. And, you know, it, it was a long night. I mean, uh, you know, it was all day and wasn't until the next morning until we got extracted. But uh, we had a big TV in our hangar and it was really demoralizing. And it really hit home when we saw Super 6-4 crew chiefs or the crew of Super 6-4 minus uh, Michael Durant because he was a POW at that time. But uh, the crew members from Super 6-4, Randy, Gordon, uh, Randy and, and Gary, uh, they're stripped down. Um, they're tied up, hands tied up and being dragged down the streets of Mogadishu. That was an eye opener for us. And that really hit me hard. Um, seeing that, it, I think it devastated everybody. Just seeing our fallen comrades that we we couldn't do anything to get to, um, being treated in such a manner. But, uh, I appreciate you taking the time to 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 be a part of this conversation and to to you know be to publish with us as well. I know that it's a uh, it's a big deal. Yeah, I tell you, it was it was fun doing the article. Um, and, you know, it brought back a lot of memories. I had probably forgotten so much. I mean, it's 28 years ago. You don't forget everything. There's certain things you remember. But I had to jog my memory on some of the times and, and uh, some of the things we did. And, you know, I remember, you know, like I say, I, I could tell you sitting in there after a while, I would have gave a whole paycheck for water. And uh, I know that we did a res resupply um, and a helicopter. I can't remember what helicopter came in and they kicked out boxes crates of loaded magazines for us that was already loaded um, five gallon water cans uh, a whole lot of more ivs because we need a lot of ivs we had we had a couple casualties that was immediate evac in our location and i'm sure all the other ones had too because we had 70 something wounded throughout the battle so um some of them were critical some of them weren't as bad but uh um yeah, that, those are some things that that I take away that I won't forget. But the biggest takeaway is is the uh, camaraderie and the, the, just the sheer uh, excellence of these soldiers that um, fought that night. And, uh, you know, wasn't for their bravery and, and their training and their um, um, leadership, it would have been a lot worse than what it was. Mr. Perdue, I had a question real quick. Um, okay. I was wondering – uh, do you keep in contact with any of these guys? And I was kind of wondering how this experience has shaped or changed your life after the fact. Well, you know, I can tell you it's changed my my life in an aspect of, you know, I used to get upset about certain little things. I don't really get mad that much anymore based on the fact that I always bring it back to Mogadishu. I say, well, you know, if I didn't survive that night, like Randy and, and, and uh, Gordon and some of the other ones that we lost this, this, whatever it is in my life really wouldn't matter. So my wife, my, you know, when I first come back, I think uh, that first year was kind of tough, you know, to be around because, you know, I, it was just rough. You know, that was, that was a tough time in my life. But after that, I think it changed for the good. I, I, my, my attitude towards the little things, I don't get bothered. And my, my wife said, you know, nothing bothers you no more. And I tell her, well, if I died in, in Somalia, none of this right here going on really would matter. So that's something that I kind of changed my attitude towards. And, and I think in, in that aspect, when, when something's going bad, really bad, I'll just say, hey, you know, if I died in Mogadishu, this really wouldn't matter right now. 
Um, does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, not everybody has your experiences, but even myself, you know, I always say, well, it's not as hot as Kuwait or it's not as cold as Fort Drum. You know what I mean? So it's funny though, how one day, I mean, that's one day in your life and it can, it can affect the rest of your life. I, I, I have, I've had days like that and, and it's funny how that, that works. Well, you know, I never went and got checked for PTSD and, and, you know, it's, and I probably had some form of it, but I dealt with it. But when I see war movies, it kind of brings me back when I see the, you know, what the casualties and, and, you know, things are going through, unless you actually been deep it, you really, and I think private, save it private Ryan on the beach, um, that assault really hit home because it really shows the aspects of people getting wounded losing limbs i mean most army movies you see they they get shot and they fall down but i think private savior ryan was really on the beach really is a you know an eye opener for what really goes on and um i don't think most of us are ready to see your best friends um you know killed in action i think uh we had quite a few body bags at the pakistani um you know um what they call it pakistani stadium um where we we end up going to after oh, the uh, olympic, olympic stadium olympic stadium yeah so um yeah in the movie that that little portion uh the the guys running down the road was the command group because we really didn't have any more vehicles but uh, eventually one of the apcs came back and picked us up and it was kind of ironic um i was one of the first ones to jump in apc and and uh there was two young rangers in there and uh everybody jumped on top of me. So I'm on the bottom of the APC and I got four or five people on top. And I mean, it was hard to breathe and, you know, good thing I had a rucksack and it probably saved me from being crushed. But this young Ranger, I'll never forget him. Um, his, you know, he was saying, Hey, Sarge, don't worry about it. It's going to be all right. And I'm like, just let me out this APC. I'll take my chance. I just, and, and the ironic thing is year, you know, a couple of years after that, several years, I don't know exactly. So I've been teaching Sergeant Majors Academy for 17 years now. Uh, he came through and he said, you remember me? And I said, no. He said, I was the one in APC that was talking with you as we exfilled. And I thought that was, you know, st- you know, phenomenal that he remembered me because I couldn't remember his name, but he remembered me, I guess, from being, you know, one of the ground force, uh, part of the assault force. Uh, I-, I thought that was amazing. Hey, sir, I had a one one last question for me. Um, okay. At, with all of your experience, being a Sergeant Major retired, um, now teaching at Sergeant Major Academy, what is some good Mr. Purdue advice that you would give to young non-commissioned officers? Wow, I would say young non-commissioned officers. I would say you you know one of the biggest thing I would say, and and I always as a Sergeant Major, I would always say train as you're going to fight. You know when we go out and do. Um, you know, movement of contact or raids or ambush, I would always make sure I'd get one or two, you know, wounded casualties because realistically, you know, when you're in a heavy firefight, you're going to take some casualties. You're going to get some injuries for the most part, I, I believe. So I would make them carry those individuals for exfil, you know, for realism. So again, realism training, you know, um, don't take shortcuts because the shortcuts will get you. And uh, I, I firmly believe train as you're going to fight. And, uh, you know, if you do it well, you'll, you'll come out successful for the most part. There's a, another question. Again, it doesn't, well, it's, I don't know that it's, it's not directly related to the uh, mission command aspect of the article, but uh, there's something that you said that you said you were awarded a silver star. So tell us about that. Yeah. So, you know, uh, I think back in June of this, this past year, um, I, my, I, I came home from, from work and um, my wife said there's a certified letter sitting on the uh, table. So I'm thinking that's probably something to do with my BA claim or, or whatever it may be. And I opened it and uh, I started jumping up and down and, and uh, my wife said, what is it? I said, they just uh, upgraded my, my bronze star with valor to a silver star. And she goes, and so, and I'm like, never mind, don't forget about it. But uh, um, the silver star, I, I went back uh, one October this, this, this past uh, couple months ago in one October, I flew back to Fort Bragg and I think they awarded like 36 of us, um, a bronze star with valor upgraded to a silver star. And, uh, I could just, instead of trying to explain what it is, I'll, I'll, I'll briefly read it to you. 
the citation. I had to pull it out because I hadn't did anything with it. But the uh, yeah, please, please read read away. Okay, so the citation reads like this, uh, so you can get a feel for kind of the battle itself. It says from uh, for gallantry in action from three October eighty three to four October. 90 or 93 to 4 October 93 while serving in support of Operation Unisom 2 in Mogadishu, Somalia. So our first class produced team fought through intense enemy resistance during the time numerous friendly casualties were suffered in order to reach a downed helicopter crew and still um, trap pilot before the enemy. Throughout the entire operation displayed great personal and courage, competent, uh, complete disregard for his own safety. Sacks resulted in both a successful raid and defense of a crash site. And so that's really um, the whole just of, you know, we're a lot of the heroism from everybody. I mean, there's probably, as a matter of fact, I think to the personnel that was a world's uh, originally awarded the Silver Star was upgraded to the Medal of Honor. I, I, I can't remember two that that one of them was posthumously. But uh, uh, so two, a couple of I think four of the Silver Stars were also upgraded to Medal of Honors, a Medal of Honor. Um, from that particular battle. Um, I don't think I really did anything um, heroic. I think I did my job. Um, I could tell you that there's many, many that did to, in my eyes that did horror, um, did stuff that was just phenomenal. And, uh, and they didn't think twice about doing it. But again, um, when it comes to fellow comrades, we take that seriously and, and we never want to leave anybody behind And And to see, like I say, to see, um, Randy and, and um, uh, Gary being drugged down the street like that was, uh, I guess, a kick in the gut for most of us. Well, we're, uh, we appreciate you taking the time to read that and, and tell us about it. I think that's uh, it's still whether whether you believe that you were heroic or not. I think we're we're here at the NCO Journal. We're very proud of you and very proud that you uh, that you joined us and, and talked about your experience and um, and about your article, of course. Uh, thank you for that. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Dr. Mastin, thank you for joining us as well. Uh, appreciate you spending the time to, uh, taking the time to come join us and, and be a part of this conversation. Uh, and, and we'd like to thank our audience. Remember to put your knowledge to the page, submit articles, and get published with the NCO Journal. Don't forget to check out our webpage and follow us on social media. We'll catch you next time on the NCO Journal Podcast.